Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're looking at Mark 3. If you're visiting Christ Church, uh, we're glad you're with us this morning. Welcome. Uh, my name's Mark, and I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church. And uh, you've joined us, as Elijah explained a little bit earlier, you've joined us in the midst of a series of sermons that are, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the first Gospels written. In fact, it is the first Gospel written, and we've called it Relentless Pursuit. The design of this series is to show us that Mark is writing to an audience that would have known people who knew Jesus, and he was trying to bring them into the loop of something that happened uh, 20, 30 years previous, and he's bringing them into an understanding of the crown and the cross, that he came to identify who he was as king, and he came to show us the cross, which was the purpose for which God sent him. And what we've learned so far in our series is that the identity of Jesus was established by God's voice at his baptism. When he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we realize that the authority by which Jesus would lead his mission would be the words of God. Because when he was tempted in the wilderness following his baptism, uh, he used the words of God to refute the lies of Satan and the temptations that came his way. To make his life easier and he instead chose suffering. And then we saw the plan that God had intended for Jesus by the way in which Jesus used the, the belief and faith of his followers to establish his kingdom, which we are a part of that legacy and we continue on. Then we looked at his authority to forgive sins, realizing you can only forgive sins if they have been committed against you. And Jesus forgave the young man who was lowered by his friends to the roof, establishing to everybody a statement of who he was, subtle yet clear, that he was God. And last week we talked about the power Jesus has and authority over everything we fear, from storms that scare us, to death, to evil, Jesus establishes in in Mark chapter 4 and 5 that he has control of all of that, restoring everything that we've given away. And so today I want to continue on, but I want to begin by looking at Mark chapter 1 verse 1 to remind us, all of us, whether you've been gone a few weeks or been with us every week, that here is the impact Mark was after. When you would have opened the scroll that Mark would have written this on, here's the first line. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Any questions about where he's taking us? He used the word Christ, the word Messiah, the anointed one, the called one. And he's establishing who he is. Uh, John, the apostle John, would quote Jesus in John chapter 20. He wants us to have the same intent. That you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That you may believe that he is. And this is going to play a big role in what we talk about today. Last week, I I went to chapters 4 and 5 to establish his authority. Now I want to come back and ask you a a big question. Because the Holy Spirit has testified to who Jesus is, and God has testified to who Jesus is, and the prophet John the baptizer, he testified to who Jesus is. And there are many people that are surrounding. Remember that Mark makes a distinction when he uses the word crowd, that the word crowd does not mean follower. The crowd means people that are interested, but it doesn't mean people that are committed. And it would even point out in John chapter 12, John says that there were people in the crowd who wanted to believe, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. It's a challenge today. There are defining moments in every one of our lives. 
And most of us don't really know they're the defining moments until they happen. Choices we make that indicate our future, choices we make that keep us from a better future or give us a better future, no matter what it is, there are some big moments that we're all aware of. It might be graduation from high school or graduation from college or maybe the choice to, to go to a particular school and train or maybe it's a choice to go to the military or a choice not to go to school and just go into the workforce and make a difference in your talents and abilities. It's the first time we buy a house or an apartment, the first place that's ours, first car we buy, the first time we fall in love, who we get married to. It's when we have a loved one pass away and we're confronted with death as a defining moment. There's memorable trips we've taken and even some not memorable trips we've taken. There's moments of great success and moments of epic failure. All of them shape us. They're, They're big moments. From the youngest time, we've all decided to differentiate ourselves, and we we make defining choices. It might be the music you listened to when you were younger. All your friends went to one particular genre, and you decided to go the other way. I remember the first time I had to make the bold confession in junior high that I liked Willie Nelson, and I got judged. But it was kind of neat because then I was known as the only kid in junior high who liked Willie Nelson, and that was all right. It might have been the way you dressed or the kind of makeup you did or did not wear, kind of clothes you did or didn't wear, the sports you chose to play or the instrument you played or the art that you performed or the drama that you did or the fact that you said no to all of those and you were not an extracurricular kid. You just did your thing. All of those are moments and choices we make to set ourselves different from everybody else around us. It's a part of growing up. It's a part of experiencing life. Most of us, if we're honest, we want to leave a legacy. We want people to remember us. I've jokingly said many, many times that uh, I just hope someone comes to my funeral. And if they come, will they at least cry even if they have to fake it? Just to make me feel good. Hoping that being here has made some, some sort of difference. But the truth is, and we all need to know this, if you're gonna leave a legacy, you've gotta live a legacy. You've gotta make choices that leave a significance to your being here. And it won't be about you. It'll be about the hope, the joy, and the love that you give to someone else. It won't be about what you've received, made, or spent. It'll be about how you've poured yourself into somebody else and given them something that lasts long after we're gone. The people that you remember, the people that you hold on to, they invested in you whether they knew it or not, and they redefined you by the love they gave or the information or the wisdom, just the fact that they valued you. It matters. But if you're going to live a legacy, it's not always going to be found in those epic moments of marriage and degrees and accomplishments and rewards and trophies. Many times the most significant way that you're identified is how you treat the person at the coffee shop who gave you the wrong order or didn't get it the way you like it or misspelled your name on the cup. It may be the way that you treat people in the left lane who don't feel like they're driving in the left lane for the right reasons. Can I have an amen? <laughs> My kids are going to realize he loved Jesus. He hated people. And I'm going to have to change that legacy. You see, it's the small things we make. It's not just the big things that define our everyday. Today is one of those moments where a defining statement must be made. I know that's bold, but it's just true. Christian thinker and apologist C.S. Lewis had just a very funny way of establishing one of the biggest decisions we make in our life. He says, one of these three things is true. Jesus is either a lunatic on the level of somebody who thinks he's a poached egg, 
That's always made me smile. Or, he's a liar at such a calculated and clever and extreme level as to probably be unequaled as a purveyor of deception. Or, he's Lord. But forget the patronizing nonsense as he's a good teacher. That's not an option. Jesus never said, I'm a good teacher. Jesus never said, I'm going to give you Proverbs to live by that will make your life easier and make people like you. In fact, he said, if you follow me, I'll divide people from you. If you choose me. And Lewis says to his audience that we must remember the only options available to us are Jesus is out of his mind, he's intentionally deceiving us, or he's exactly who he said he was. And this is a defining moment for many of us. You'd think that by the time we get to Mark chapter 3, 4, and 5, that somewhere in all of this, the crowd would begin to get Jesus, but they don't. Let me explain why. First point I want to make this morning is, when we look at the passage in Mark chapter 3, beginning verse 20, some thought he was simply unstable. The crowd gathered around him, they saw him performing miracles, but they assessed that he just wasn't right, that something had happened to him, that he had slipped off track, if you will. Verse 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. You see, Jesus, you want to talk about relentless pursuit? The crowd around Jesus was relentless. There was no space, there was no time. He had to avoid sleeping, to spend time with God. He had to to find moments of peace and quiet. He had to get away. He slept in a boat in the middle of a storm. He was an exhausted, torn down man. And the crowd was, was pressing in on him, so much so that his family decided they needed to go get him and pull him away from the crowd because the things he was saying just didn't make sense. Thought he was unstable. Now, I know that if you can look it up, and I've done my research, if you look up the expression his family, that doesn't necessarily just mean his brothers, sisters, and mom. It means those close to him. It's a Greek term that means his inner circle. And they became worried about Jesus. So they wanted to take charge. They thought he needed them. And so that moment that I want to share with you, if we can pause, our, pause the scene and pull ourselves back from a little bit, I want you to understand, if this happened to Jesus, we can expect that it might happen to us, and here's what I want us to remember. If you follow the plan of Christ, and you do what Jesus asks you to do, you should not expect that everyone will clap for you. Some people will think you're off track. Some people will think you've lost your mind. Some people will think you're giving Jesus too much attention. And they will try to rescue you. They will try to pull you away from that and say, no, don't go crazy. And yet we're going to talk about that. Because if he is who he says he is, you ought to go crazy. And they came to get Jesus. Let's jump down to verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brother arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brother are outside looking for you. And he asked, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and they said, here are your mother, or here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Interesting moment. Is Jesus having a bad day again? Remember last week we said he just woke up in the boat and he was crabby? No, he wasn't. He was, he was upset at their lack of faith. And in this moment, I mean, for instance, if I'm preaching right now and someone yells in the back door, hey, Mark, your mom and dad are here from Indiana. And I went, no. These are my mothers and fathers. My mother would punch me in the face. 
She would walk up here, grab me by the ear. I'd be grounded for two weeks. Well, she's a soft-spoken woman. She'd wait. But she wouldn't be happy with that. I don't think we need to read into this that Jesus is dismissing the value of his family. He's not saying they don't matter. Listen, he's saying you all matter. You matter as much as my blood family. You matter because you care about me and I care about you and this makes us all family. The family metaphor cannot be denied in the New Testament. It is the image God wants us to hold on to. As jacked up as your personal family may be, your family with Christ is perfect because you're welcomed and loved and accepted. And he said, no, what makes family is not blood relationships. It's trusting, obeying, and honoring the word. So when he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He's showing them, you're all close to me if you're close to the word of God and you trust me. Luke's telling of this particular moment in Jesus' ministry. Luke records in Luke 11, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is your mother who gave you birth and nursed you. That's a good moment. Someone, you know, giving Jesus a little love here. And they're going, your mom's an awesome woman. She raised you. You're incredible. She must be an amazing woman. And Jesus says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, is he saying Mary's act as a virgin to give birth to the Son of God was insignificant? No. But what he's saying is those who know who I am and follow me, those are my family, and they matter too. But they thought he was unstable. And they came to get him. Now, you may not think Jesus is unstable, but in our culture, we kind of think he's unrealistic. We think he's unreasonable. We think that Jesus doesn't really get the world we live in today. You know, he lived a long time ago, so he really doesn't understand. You know, some of the things like turning the other cheek, come on, Jesus, that's not reasonable. I want to have you know today, if he is who he says he is, he doesn't have to be reasonable. He's still right. He doesn't have to be realistic. He's still right. When he presents to us the way things can be and the power of those can be, we need to trust that or he's crazy. And for many of us, this is, this is what I want to challenge us. It's a defining moment for us. For many of us, we think that if we believe that he is a good man who did good things and should be worshipped, that that's following him. And it's not. You're no different than those who say, he's an amazing guy, but I'm not going to do what he says because that's just unreasonable. Second thing you see in the crowd that day of why it was a defining moment was some thought he was simply a deceiver. Look at verses 22 through 30 with me. And the teacher of the law who came down from Jerusalem, I want you to notice that. The teachers, the Pharisees, the religious leaders came down because the crowds were gathering, they were getting bigger, and they knew they had their hands full. And they said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. They came down. Now notice they hadn't been there. But they showed up and made a pronouncement to the crowd, don't trust this guy, he's satanic. So Jesus called them and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact... No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So they come down and they pronounce to the crowd, this man, he's of Satan, don't listen to him. And the crowd looks and says, but he's healing the sick. He's, he's healing lepers. He's healing blind people. He's casting out demons. He's feeding people and taking care of their needs. Everything the Old Testament said our Messiah would do, he's doing it. And you're saying he's of Satan. And Jesus calls them together and he says, now listen to me. Let me ask you a question. Would a good general cause his troops to fight one another and die? Well, no. Would a businessman go out of his way to diminish his stock and ruin all the financial basis of his business and its efficacy? No. Would Satan fight himself and tear down his own home? And if you were going to rob somebody, would you walk in their house and then hand you their big screen TV? Or would you not knock them out, tie them up, or go when they're not there and steal the TV because they wouldn't want you to take their TV? He's using simple logic to the crowd. And then he gives the moment where he talks about the sin that cannot be forgiven. And instantly I have your attention. I notice that. Even the babies got quiet. What is it? Did I do it? What if I did it by accident? What if I don't know I did it? Relax. And remember the context of the story Mark's displaying when Jesus said it. This concept of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus says, there are some people who blaspheme and they don't know they're doing it. Okay, they say things about men and Jesus said they even say things about me, but they don't know me yet. And that's going to be, don't worry about that. God will overcome that because he's revealing, the revelation of Jesus is ongoing and he's revealing to our hearts and souls this. But he says, but there are some who know exactly the power by which I'm operating. The power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. They know where it came from. They know that it matches the Old Testament promise of the Messiah. And yet because of their own self-interest and their own obstinance, they're going to try to divide you against me. And he said, be very careful. That will not be forgiven. Have you noticed in the Old Testament when someone saw God, they fell down and thought they were going to die? And here were men standing in the presence of God Almighty, doing the work of God, and they were calling him Satan. And Jesus said, be very careful of that, because that game you lose. And you say, but wait a second. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, to the depths of the sea, that God will remember our sins no more. Is this a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction, because let me tell you why. The thing that will separate your sins from east and west is Jesus Christ. And when you see the work of Jesus Christ and you treat it as if he's a liar or a lunatic, when you deny the work of God or you don't open yourself up to the work of God and when you do see it, you say to yourself, it's not real, it's not legitimate, then you are not going to be saved and when you're not saved, you are unforgiven and the greatest problem of every man is unforgiven sin because unforgiven sin sends us away from God for eternity. Nod your head if that makes any sense. So what is the unforgivable sin? to see the work of God and to deny it's God. And it was in Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus. You see, because whether you realize it or not, before you were a believer in Jesus, God's Spirit was speaking to you. 
God's spirit was revealing to you who Jesus was. And do you remember that moment when you heard the stories of Jesus and you thought about the resurrection of Jesus and you heard about the gospel good news of a new king and a new kingdom and a new opportunity and you realize I have destroyed my life. I have been a liar, a sinner, I've cheated, I've done everything that I never wanted to do. And you're living in that moment and someone says there's a new king coming and he has a love for you and he's not gonna deny that you were wrong and he's not gonna deny that you were a sinner but he's going to cleanse you of your sin and invite you to be a part of a new work and this work is going to seem so unreasonable and so out of sorts and so off the track but he's going to invite you to be a part of it do you remember that moment where deep down inside maybe it's right now you said to yourself yes that's real it has to be i don't understand all of it but i know my heart is telling me i'm being led by this understanding that i've never understood it before but now i see it for some of us we broke into tears for some of us we broke into hallelujah but in that moment we went yes that was the holy spirit that wasn't you it was revealed to you by the power of the holy spirit that jesus christ is who he says he is and in that moment you have the choice of saying yes and defining your future or saying eh, i don't know and i wouldn't say i don't know too long because when you deny The convicting of the spirit, you grieve and quench that spirit. And without that spirit introducing you to Jesus, we are all lost. Now, we're not lost because we're bad. That's a given. We're lost because we don't have Jesus. And it's in this moment that Jesus looks at those who have concluded he's a liar. And what do they do? They plot to kill him. This is what they decide to do. Mark 3, 6 says, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. In verse 26, Jesus says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Reminds me of John 17 when Jesus would pray, God, bring them unity. Don't divide them. Bring them together around me. It's a defining moment. In verse 28, Jesus says, truly I say to you, Some of your translations might say, I tell you the truth. 14 times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark records Jesus saying to his disciples, listen, there's a lie present, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And the lie was he was of Satan. He said, I'm going to tell you this truth. All sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. We don't have forgiveness, not because God has turned us away. We don't have forgiveness because we won't repent of the sin that caused us to be lost. And the only means of doing that is Jesus. See, these religious leaders had started this process. They denied the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. They rejected the good news and hope of the gospel. They ignored human needs, and then they desired to kill him. They had closed their hearts to the work of God and the opportunity of Jesus. And by rejecting Jesus, as as conviction of the Holy Spirit brought to them, they walked away from the only means of salvation. So some found him to be unreasonable, some found him to be diabolical, and thirdly, some found him to be Lord. Now, this shouldn't shock any of us who come to church regularly that I'd end up here. His family thought he was unreasonable, his expectations were odd, that he was asking too much, and that he himself thought he was God. The Pharisees knew exactly what he was doing, and they decided to call him a deceiver because it cost them too much to follow him. But the Holy Spirit was pronouncing to everybody he's Lord of all exact way he should say. So, but let's understand, there's a difference. The defining moment is not simply saying there was a Jesus. And the defining moment is not saying he was God. 
Please understand this. Satan knows full well he's God and didn't change anything. There's a term we use. We don't use it in America at all. We don't use, in my lifetime, we don't, we don't use it in our culture at all. We laugh at people who would suggest they're it. But there's a term today called Lord. Lord doesn't mean he's God. Lord means he's my personal God. You see, I can believe there's a God and live my life hellishly. But I can't believe that Jesus Christ is God and not submit. Does that make sense? Lordship means his direction is my direction, even if it seems outlandish and unreasonable. Lordship means that I know where he came from, and I know that the Holy Spirit convicting me of his word and his truth is important and essential. So I can't just admit he's God. I have to admit he's my God, my personal choice. And that means it's not just in the big moments about what degrees we pursue or who we marry or what we do with our money, but it's also those moments where the Lordship shows up at the Starbucks when they get your drink wrong. Or when you go through the drive-thru and you get half your order. And all of a sudden you feel supreme, superior, and wanting to wreak justice. It's how we are when we're driving on the highway and someone in the left lane doesn't understand the concept. It's how we treat our kids. It's how we treat our spouses. It's how we treat our parents. It's how we treat one another. It's how we leave this parking lot. It's how we engage with each other. It's how we treat those who have wronged us. It's how we ask to be treated when we've wronged somebody else. All of this is the lordship of Jesus displayed. And that can't happen by simply saying, I'm going to do better. It has to be by taking a knee before Jesus Christ and realizing who he is. He's not unreasonable, but he is. But he's not unreasonable because he's God. And you'll only know how reasonable his life is when you live it, fully confident, in his guidance. And he's not satanic because a satanic person wouldn't heal a leper, cause a, a deaf person to hear, a blind person to see, and a lame person to dance. He wouldn't put himself on a cross and die for all of us. He wouldn't do that. That's not what a liar does. A liar wouldn't say, I'm going to raise myself in three days and then, for the love, do it. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's Lord. Pure and simple only way it can be. It's a defining moment. Some of us, were scared. Remember the verse I read? You're scared of what people will think. You're scared of what your friends will do. They won't invite you to the parties anymore. They won't hang out with you. You'll make them uncomfortable and you wonder that's a big price. Your friends will make fun of you because you decide that you're going to flip that switch and you're no longer going to just believe he's God. You're going to make him your Lord. You're going to submit to his wishes. You're going to live the way he calls you to live. And it's going to cost you something. And if you think following Jesus doesn't cost you something, I'm going to venture you're not following Jesus. He said, I will divide mother against son and father against daughter. I will divide families. I'll divide nations. Not because he's punishing us, but because to give to the lordship of Jesus means you say no to the lordship of the world. And that'll cost you something. And I don't say that like you deserve it. I say it like get ready because when you take a knee before Jesus, the whole world changes before you. The way we drink our coffee, the way we drive our vehicles, the way we speak to one another, the way we live our lives. In John chapter 6 verse 40, Jesus said, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I want you to notice, beholds the Son, I know who he is. Believes in him, I follow him. I choose him above all else. His word is the final authority. 
You see, to obey his will is to be in a relationship with him. These are my brothers, my mothers, my sisters. Those who obey me, who trust me, who believe in me and commit to me, this is my family. And to glorify God through the work of the Spirit is to give testimony at each and every step of our life that Jesus Christ is Lord and I can prove it by what he's done in my life. To testify with my whole life that he is it. He's worth it, church. And I know for many of you, you sit here today and you go, Mark, I've known this since I was nine. Yes, you may have known it since you were nine and you may have been living under the lordship, but I'm telling you, we, many of us, including myself, have had seasons of my life when I've been deceived. I've been too scared to follow his lordship. I know who he is, but I'm not sure I want to take a knee. I know this is a strange equation. I'll be brief. But one of the riskiest things I ever had to do in my life was ask Heather to marry me. And I know you're going to laugh, and you wish, she probably wished she hadn't, but she did. She stuck with me. But I had to actually ask Heather to marry me while we were broke up. I told my dad, I'm either going to have to marry that girl or get as far away from her as I possibly can. We had dated so long that this half-part-time relationship, living elsewhere, it was time for us to commit to each other or go separate ways. And I was really scared. And we went for a walk, and I said to her, will you marry me? And she said no, and I died. I knew it was a risk. It wasn't a given. It wasn't a layup. She could have said no. We were fighting. We weren't getting along. We weren't even seeing each other and dating. And I thought, I need to do this. I just need to take the risk. I was so scared. She said no. I absolutely died. Now, what she tells me is she looked at me and said, I'm joking. Yes. I didn't hear that. I was packing my dorm room. I was heading out of town. I was joining the Merchant Marines. If there are such a thing, I have no idea. But in that risk... I knew what I wanted to be with her. I didn't know if she wanted the same with me. Some of you, this Jesus thing scares you to death. I have no regrets for taking that risk. Not a one. And you'll never have a regret taking the risk, but I can't take it for you. You have to take it for yourself. If you want to know what that is, we're going to sing some songs that are very intentional this morning, as they are every week. We're going to ask you to profess who you believe Jesus Christ is. And some of these songs, I'm going to ask you, if you can't sing them, don't. It's okay. Because we're not singing a song. We are making a testimony in this room that we believe Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. And if you want to know more about that, come see one of us at the tables in the back of the room. There are two tables with lamps on them. Meet us back there. If that makes you uncomfortable, meet me out in the foyer after this service, the prayer center. You'll see a bunch of us with, uh, with tags that say prayer team. Come see us. No pressure. But this is a defining moment. Let us stand and proclaim it together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.